Will Congress pass bipartisan legislation to fix the Electoral Count Act that Donald Trump tried to exploit in 2020? Is the new Electoral Count Reform Act the right way to go to stop election subversion? Are there ways of improving the act before Congress may pass it as soon as this fall? On Season 4, Episode 1 of the ELB Podcast, we hear a recent conversation that I moderated with Norm Eisen, Ned Foley, Rebecca Green, Jay Michael Luddick, and Janae Nelson. Welcome to the ELB Podcast. This is Rick Hassan of UCLA School of Law and the Election Law Blog. It's great to welcome you back to a fourth season of the ELB Podcast. Since the end of last season, I've moved over to UCLA School of Law and become the founding director of the Safeguarding Democracy Project, a project aimed at ensuring that we continue to have free and fair elections in the United States. The first two episodes of the ELB Podcast this season will feature recordings of recent Safeguarding Democracy Project events. The first episode, recorded on August 24, 2022, features an in-depth conversation about proposed bipartisan legislation to fix an arcane 1887 law, the Electoral Count Act, that Donald Trump and his allies unsuccessfully tried to exploit to turn Biden's victory over Trump around. As you will hear, there is lots of consensus among our panelists that this old law needs to be fixed, but less consensus about precisely how to do it. So let's take a listen. Let me introduce today's esteemed panel, and I'm, I'm thrilled to have everyone here today to talk about this very important topic. Ambassador Norm Eisen is a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institute and an expert on law ethics and anti-corruption. He most recently served as special counsel to the House Judiciary Committee from 2019 to 2020, including for the impeachment and trial of President Trump, a topic of his most recent book, A Case for the American People, the United States versus Donald Trump. Edward B. or Ned Foley holds the Ebersole Chair in Constitutional Law at The Ohio State University, where he directs its election law program. He's a contributing opinion columnist for The Washington Post. And for the 2020 election season, he served as an NBC News analyst. His most recent book is called Presidential Elections and Majority Rule. It was published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Rebecca Green is Associate Professor of Law at William & Mary Law School, where she teaches courses in election law, redistricting, privacy law, and alternative dispute resolution. Professor Green co-directs the election law program, a joint project of the law school and the National Center for State Courts, and it provides resources for judges on election law topics. J. Michael Luddig served on the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit for 15 years from 1991 to 2006. He is currently counselor and special advisor to the Coca-Cola Company and its board of directors. Prior to joining the Coca-Cola Company, Judge Luddig was counselor and senior advisor to the Boeing Company CEO and board of directors. Janae Nelson is president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Nelson formerly served as associate director counsel and as a member of the LDF's litigation and policy teams. She's also served as interim director of the LDF's Thurgood Marshall Institute and in other capacities. Before that, she was associate dean for faculty scholarship and associate director of the Ronald H. Brown Center for Civil Rights and Economic Development at St. John's University School of Law, where she was also a full professor and served on the law school's leadership team. So glad to have all of you today. And I've asked Ned to open this up by giving us just a brief overview of why is it that we're talking about legislation to change this 1887 law called the Electoral Count Act? And 
what does this proposed legislation, which for a shorthand we'll call the Collins Mansion legislation or the Electoral College Reform Act, what would it do? How would it make things different? So let me turn it over to you, Ned. Thank you, Rick. And I'm delighted to be part of this event, which I think is addressing a really important topic. Um, so to address the questions that Rick put to us, there is a great necessity for reform to fix this antiquated statute that Rick mentioned from 1887. And I think the most vivid way to describe the need for reform and the risk that we face if we don't have it is to contemplate the possibility of an election denialist becoming a governor of a battleground state. I think we all know the term election denialism. It's used in the news today, and it refers to politicians who negate the results of elections. It's what we mean by election subversion. It's um, repudiating authentic results of counting votes. And as we know from reading the newspaper and, and, and watching the news, there are candidates uh, who have embraced the so-called big lie and this concept of election denialism. Some of them are running for governors of battleground states, including the state of Arizona, if we want to pick one state as a potential vivid example. And the key point here is that under the current statute, the Electoral Count Act of 1887, which is the statute that Congress uses every time it meets to count the electoral votes from the states, it was the statute that was used on January 6, 2021, but it was used every prior four years. It's an old statute, as Rick said, and we can talk about the, the details of it. But the danger that it poses for us going forward is basically if only one chamber of Congress, so let's imagine the House of Representatives is also in the hands of election denialists. The majority party in the US House of Representatives has embraced election denialism. And the governor of a pivotal state has also done that. That combination can subvert the will of the result in the states, even if the courts validate the true counting of the votes. Now, how is this possible under the statute? The way it would happen is just imagine the kind of litigation that we saw in 2020 um, occurring after election day in November, before the electors meet for the Electoral College in December, and there might be recounts or what have you, but the courts weigh in and they, let's just Again, I'm really making a nonpartisan point because it could go either way. But but if we want, we can envision the possibility of the courts all saying that the Democratic ticket for president and vice president has won the state of Arizona in 2024. And that is the judicial conclusion before the electors are supposed to meet. But let's say the governor of Arizona says, I don't believe it. I don't accept it. I am going to certify that the Republican ticket has won the state of Arizona. That is what would set up the situation that did not materialize in 2020. There were these alternative slates of electors that I'm sure you've heard about, but none of them, and they were also from Arizona among the other states that Trump was trying to overturn the Biden Electoral College victory. But none of those alternative slates of electors was authenticated or validated by any institution of state government. They were just self-asserted. 
to claim that power, which is leading to the possibility of you know legal peril on the part of the people that were involved in that. But that's 2020. What might happen in 2024 is that the Democratic electors meet because they have been authenticated by the judiciary as the true electors for Arizona, and they cast their electoral votes for the Democratic ticket. But the Republican electors get certified by the election denialist governor. Both of those things go to Congress, and that sets up the conflict. Now, under a proper interpretation of this old convoluted 1887 act, I would submit, and I think other scholars would submit, that what Congress is supposed to do, regardless of party, is accept the judicially determined uh, result in favor of the Democratic ticket if it meets the safe harbor provision of the statute. We can talk about what that means. But what we saw in 2020, and we actually saw this in other elections, including 2004, is that members of Congress ignore the safe harbor provision, and they will object to and try to invalidate electoral votes, even if they should be counted. And if that happens, and even if the U.S. Senate says, we follow the law, we accept that the judges have said that the Democratic ticket won, doesn't matter that the Senate does that. If the House decides it wants to back the electoral vote submission that the governor has certified, setting up a debate or a conflict between the Senate and the House, there is a single sentence of this convoluted statute, which essentially says that in that case of deadlock between the House and the Senate, whatever is submitted by the governor must prevail. And that's what could cause election subversion. So that is the real risk that we face and that is why it is so imperative that this statute be amended. And the good news is this Collins Mansion bill does the job. It undoes the damage of the ambiguity of the existing law. And it does that by elevating what is buried in the current law, but bringing it to the fore. And this concept in the safe harbor provision doesn't use the term safe harbor. We don't have to use that term if we don't want to, but it says basically that Congress must accept as conclusive whatever is judicially determined if there's been litigation over the popular vote in a state and who and what the real electors are. It doesn't allow for the governor's submission to prevail. And it says if the federal courts get involved, whatever the federal courts decide is conclusive. If, there's, if only state courts are involved and there's a fight between the state judiciary and the state governor, the state judiciary wins. If the governor refuses to obey the court decree, there's special expedited litigation in federal court to make the governor obey. But the key provision of the Collins Mansion bill is it doesn't really matter what the governor does. It's sort of a belt and suspenders approach. It says that the judicial ruling that says the truth should prevail becomes the authentic certificate that Congress must obey. And so that is what will allow the rule of law to prevail, the will of the voters to prevail, and to avoid election subversion. Thanks, Ned. That was a very helpful overview. Before I turn to the, the other panelists and ask for their reactions to uh, what's going on, let me just give a, a bit of context as to why we're having this discussion now. It's really unusual these days with our polarized politics to see a bipartisan election bill have any chance of success. And of course, for something to pass out of the Senate, 
it generally needs 60 votes. So there is a real chance that this bill, which has the support, I think, of at least eight Republican senators, you would need 10 Republican senators to sign on, could overcome a filibuster and actually become law. And you only need a majority vote in the House, but there's a chance that the House changes from Democratic control to Republican control. And maybe there's less of a chance then for this bill to actually be considered in the next Congress. And so this really is a moment where there is serious discussion. This is not just an academic discussion of why we might need to rewrite an 1887 law, but there's a real chance of things happening. And so the reason I thought we should have this panel is to talk about, is something better than nothing? And is Collins Mansion the right way to go? Does it need tweaks? And so what I want to do is turn to each of the panelists, uh, starting with Judge Ludwig, and ask, do you think fixing the Electoral Count Act is necessary? And is the Collins Mansion bill the right way to do it, or does it need to be tweaked? So let me turn it over to you, Judge. Thank you, Rick. At this moment in Washington and, and for the country, the single most important project is the amendment of, of this uh, Electoral Count Act, uh, if the country is to uh, uh, avoid another January 6th. Next, by way of disclaimer uh, up front, uh, I am not the scholar that uh, any of my co-panelists are, and uh, I'm not an expert in anything on this panel with respect to elections law or, or, or the uh, Electoral Count Act of 1887. I will defer all hard questions to Ned and the others, but my involvement arose, of course, on January 6th, uh, when I was asked to advise the, the vice president the day before January 6th. As you probably know, inauspiciously, I, I ended up doing the only thing uh, that anyone could possibly do, which was tweet my advice to the vice president. In the course of deciding the advice that I would give to the vice president a year and a half ago, I had to at least have a basic understanding of not only the, the 12th Amendment and the role of the vice president uh, during the joint session, but also, most particularly at that moment, uh, the Electoral Count Act of 1887. I'm unapologetic that before January 4th or 5th, it never looked at the act. And when I first Googled it, all I saw was the expert opinions. Since the beginning of time, it seemed to me that the uh, the act was inscrutable, ambiguous, and literally could not be understood by human being. And when I first looked at the act, I agreed. No, in all seriousness, I, I had to quickly try to understand exactly what the plan to overturn the 2020 election was and, and entailed. And a critical piece of it was the Electoral Count Act. As all of us know now, the architect uh, or one of the architects of the plan was disappointingly one of my former law clerks from 25 years ago, John Eastman. I quickly decided that the essence of the plan, what I have you know, since called the, the centerpiece of the plan was the exploitation of the combination of the Electoral Count Act and the so-called independent state legislature theory. I had to run to ground all I could uh, in the 24 hours I had 
in order to render the advice that I did. As to the Electoral Count Act, uh, I concluded that day and, and have, have written and discussed uh, almost every day since, first, that the act was desperately in need of uh, amendment and reform, and in fact, had been in need of amendment and reform since the day it was enacted in 1887. Uh, so in 1887, the act was was desperately needed. And again, it's desperately needed now some 130 or 40 years later. To cut to the chase then from, from my introductory comments, it, it was clear to me and is clear to me today that, that we needed to address both ends of, of the process contemplated by the act. The front end, as I will call it today, is what takes place within the, the respective states up to the point at which they forward to Congress to determine the presidency. The back end of that process that is in need of reform is what happens after the states have forwarded their electoral votes. I believe today, and, and I believed a, a year and a half ago, that we must, must discipline that front-end process in such a way that only a single lawfully certified electoral slate from each state would be forwarded to Congress. So the only real contribution that I've, I've made in, the, in this year, uh, I think, is this. I decided a year ago that all disputes at the state level before the votes are forwarded to Congress should be resolved by the federal courts. There were only two other options in, in my view. You know, one was, of course, to have the legislatures settle the disputes, and the other was to have either the executive of the state or worse in my view, Congress itself, which essentially is what the act provides for now. And so on the bipartisan proposal, uh, as Ned explained uh, better than I could, in essence, what that proposal would do was ensure to the maximum extent possible that all disputes within the state are finally resolved by the federal judiciary and that the slate of electors that is finally approved by the federal courts is the certifiable electoral slate that will be forwarded to Congress. And that achieved and achieves, in my view, essentially all that we could have possibly hoped for. Then on the back end, as Ned explained, the result under this proposed uh, legislation would be that Congress receives only that one certified slate, which was certified with the approval of the federal judiciary, and that as a practical matter in Congress, those certified slates would be the slates in the aggregate that are counted in the determination for the presidency. The final piece that I'll speak to is that in Congress, this legislation would provide very, very few grounds for objection by Congress. 
needless to say, under the existing act, you know, one of the most nefarious features of, of the of the law is that a single member of the Senate and a single member of the House can put a vote to the entire Congress on the legitimacy and therefore the countability of any single state's electors. Under the proposed legislation, that would uh, no longer be the case. They've almost eliminated all grounds for objection. And then they've added the requirements that uh, uh, substantial numbers of the House and Senate uh, would be re- required to, uh, to object and thereafter to sustain an objection uh, that would uh, lead to the votes from the state not being counted. As to the bipartisan legislation, this uh, first was a near political miracle, and second, that it would it would all but guarantee that the, the nation would never face another January 6th. Thank you, Judge. Let me turn to Janae. Uh, Janae, you come to this as a voting rights litigator uh, and leader of a, a major civil rights organization. How do you view something that I think wasn't on any of our agendas before a couple of years ago, this risk of election subversion and, and whether this kind of legislation and this particular legislation is the way to go? Thank you, Rick. And, and I'm so glad to be part of this discussion and grateful that you have convened us to talk about this. As you noted at the outset, this isn't just an academic conversation at this point. This is uh, quite likely to pass, I believe, because it is the result of a bipartisan working group that is responding in real time to a urgent threat to our democracy. And yes, uh, I work at the Legal Defense Fund. I have the honor of helming it. And Voting rights has been the core of our work since our founding in 1940. And we look at these issues rather expansively. You're right that the Electoral Count Act was not uh, a a front burner issue for us. I think we all knew it was an arcane law, and most of these arcane laws work to the detriment of of Black people in some way, shape, or form. Um, But we saw it really wielded against a vast majority of the electorate, um, or potentially could be wielded against a vast majority of, of the electorate in the 2020 election cycle transition. And we are deeply concerned about the potential to subvert elections through this mechanism. Uh, but we also look at election subversion or what we call election sabotage as something that begins with the suppression of the will of the majority of people in the first place, right? So just getting people to the polls and getting their opinions and wishes registered, you can subvert and sabotage the electoral process by thwarting the ability of a vast majority of people in the electorate to vote. But of course, the outcome that is uh, most obviously transgressive is when those votes are registered and they're not counted and they're not honored in the way that everyone in in a working and thriving democracy would expect. So we were very encouraged when we saw that this working group produced two pieces of legislation, the Electoral Count Reform Act and the Presidential Transition Improvement Act of 2022 and the Enhanced Election Security and Protection Act, um, which updated the ECA and and, and Ned and the judge already explained some of the ways in which um, it did that and how important it was. And we are quite pleased with uh, where this legislation is headed. We don't think that it is 
perfect. Uh, we also think that the stakes are so high that the perfect can't be the enemy of the good. But nonetheless, uh, the Electoral Count Reform Act could be better. And I believe that the working group still has some work to be done to make it so. And it's important enough to, to give it that, that extra push. It's clear and election law experts across the political spectrum agree that it's necessary to update the act. And your opening question sort of reminded me of uh, a question that Senator Klobuchar asked in, uh, in, when she asked some of us to provide congressional testimony. And she did a pointed round to ask, should we update the Electoral Count Act? And everyone gave a resounding affirmative answer, um, which, I, which was very refreshing, probably one of the first that I had seen in a congressional hearing that involved people um, with such varying political views. This this law is over uh, 145 years old. It is it was not built for this modern democracy and and some of the ways in which it can be subverted and and sabotaged and certainly not built for uh, what what Ned described as election deniers or individuals, parties, uh, political candidates that are willing to break all norms and even laws in order to win. This law is not built for that. And so we absolutely must update it. And it, it, there are some very important ways in which uh, the Electoral Count Reform Act does that. It clarifies the role of the vice president, making it clear that that's just a ministerial role and it's that the vice president does not have substantive authority uh, to determine electors. Uh, it clarifies that states must set clear rules prior to a date certain and can't change the rules, uh, you know, to to advance a preferred outcome once voting is complete. That's important to instill confidence in voters, but also to rein in states that may be led by individuals who, uh, after the fact, will try to manipulate the outcome of the election. It also removes some of the very confusing language that exists and makes it less clear as to what the final results should be on election day and mm -hmm. what the available remedies are if you want to extend voting and also prohibiting the, the discard of election results. Um, I could go on and on. I think you get the gist of what this new law does. But what we've been emphasizing is that there needs to be some broader principles that govern how this law is improved. Again, it doesn't have to be perfected uh, if that's not possible, but certainly improved. And that is to make sure that this law does not in any way compromise the ability of voters who may suffer uh, violations of statutes and, and, and the constitution and other federal laws, that they still have an avenue to challenge uh, any of those efforts and to vindicate their voting rights through a separate process, that nothing in the ECRA should uh, should take away that necessary right. Um, we also want to ensure that the judicial process that governs uh, any electoral dispute under the act is fair and unbiased, both in fact and appearance. Um, it has to yield a single and definitive result and not be subject to competing outcomes. I think this speaks to uh, you know, the judge's suggestion that federal court should be the final arbiter. And um, also we sh should make sure that there isn't an appearance that, this, that the judges 
that will be deciding these issues are in any way predisposed to a particular outcome. One way that we've suggested of trying to cure that appearance at a minimum is to make sure that the judges are randomly selected, that they're not appointed uh, even by a chief judge so that it may appear that there's any stacking of the decks. And, And we also think that the period of time for litigation after the after election day uh, needs to be expanded. It's a very, very truncated period under the current uh, iteration of the act. And we know that anytime we move a single day in this process, it pushes out another day or it has the potential to have a domino effect on all of the other triggers and, and key dates um, in, in terms of uh, ensuring a final count. Uh, But we think that there is a way for the working group to come up with a schedule that allows for the litigation uh, to be done appropriately with robust analysis to ensure adequate time for deliberation and to issue a decision that can be implemented within the requisite time frame, Um, because right now the timeline is so very, very tight. So we uh, have made those recommendations. But it's very clear, though, that no matter how good the ECRA is, even if we get to the point of perfection, it will not save our democracy from election sabotage. We absolutely need other legislation. We need the Voting Rights Advancement Act. We need the Freedom to Vote Act. We need uh, our Congress to respond with a much more expansive view of what it means to sabotage our electoral process and to protect all voters in our democracy, and particularly those voters who are targeted, uh, who are most often black and brown voters and language minorities, and the protections needed to ensure that their vote is cast and counted are as essential, in my view, as reforming the Electoral Count Act. Thank you so much for that, Janae. And and I want to turn to Norm, who I think, like you, is adamant that we need to fix the old 1887 law, but also has questions about the Collins Mansion bill. And I think Norm's probably been one of the most prominent people who's been raising questions. So Norm, I don't know if you uh, want to focus mostly on that, but also just for a minute as to if, if you agree with the other panelists that something must be done. Vehemently, and it's been clear for decades, I vividly remember doing scenarios with Ned in which we, as we were preparing for the 2020 election, uh, in which we modeled some of the catastrophes. My guide to the January 6th meeting of Congress also laid out, I was writing that guide as Judge Ludig was uh, advising, and we came to the same conclusions. But the fact that you needed a guide that was um, approximately 25 times the length of the statute to elucidate <laughs> what to do in the crisis situation is probably probably a sign that more needs to be done. I do join in the enthusiasm for this opening bid of my fellow panelists. And I thank you for, and I'll talk about the four areas where I think we should, uh, we can move for improvement. My regrettably long experience in working in the halls of Congress uh, as a government lawyer, as a defense lawyer, as an impeacher, working for committees, working against committees has taught me and working on many pieces of legislation that when these gangs 
much like West Side Story, when the gangs first meet, that's not the end of the show. There's always room for, there's room for, usually for several more acts, like in that wonderful play. Same here. And I'm going to talk about what the denouement should look like. A love story, I think, bicameral love story, and one that I hope has a happier ending than that Sondheim show. The only part I don't agree with in my predecessors is the any implication. I, I don't think anybody was said it outright, and maybe it's not implied that this is the be-all and end-all. Four areas of improvement. All are driven by the election denier and denial epidemic, the tsunami. We must assume that the hundreds of candidates uh, and of uh, bills uh, uh, from coast to coast, some of them are going to be in power or on the books, and every effort will be made to break and shatter whatever set of rules are in place. I just was doing a little tabulation in Arizona, as is well known to most, most of you, Michigan, Nevada, and Pennsylvania. It's election deniers from top to bottom of the state tickets. So it's a very alarming, it's a very alarming situation. All right, now that I've vented my alarm, I'll tell you the solutions. And number one, we must define extraordinary and catastrophic. I think Klobuchar and King have a perfectly good federal definition uh, in their proposed legislation, basically force majeure. Um, there's also a um, acceptable definition in the FEMA Authorizing Act. And number two, the timing provisions. I've been talking to actual practicing election lawyers who I worked with from coast to coast as a pro bono uh, participant in many of the cases in the last go round. And of course, I'm an actual election litigator among the many things I, yeah. I, I do. And I've done that for decades. And everyone uniformly thinks six days is far too short for this very important final act. I think you could you could run that all the way out to December 20th. Um, you could set the shall issue for the um, certificate for the executive at December 8th and double the days. So essentially 12 days. Number three, uh, uh, lawfully certified and regularly given, that's um, section 15 of the Reform Act. Uh, there, there are perfectly good federal uh, understood definitions for those that will go in legislative history. Let's not leave it to chance. Let's put those definitions in the bill. Lawfully certified has historically been understood to require that the issuance of the electors confirm with the ECA's rules and not be otherwise unconstitutional. And regularly given means votes that are not constitutionally uh, defective or corruptly cast. So let's tighten up those definitions. Finally, I think there's no need, uh, this really, this left in the principal ground of mischief, the vice president opening certificates purporting to be legitimate. Let's strike purporting and let's tighten up some of the procedural appeals, recesses, some of the open procedural questions because they will be abused 
all of it will be abused. It's an opening bid. Uh, let's make it better. It's a great, it's a very solid opening bid, but there's always a counter and a final act. Those are the four places. Stop, reinvent the wheel. And finally, I'm not only speaking for myself and laying all that out, but distinguished scholars on the center left, like Larry Tribe, Erwin Chemerinsky, the dean of um, election and campaign law in DC, Fred Wertheimer on the right, uh, scholars, constitutional scholars at the Cato Institute, and Judge Ludwig even, and on his preferred medium of Twitter, reluctantly preferred medium of Twitter, has said there's certainly room uh, for improvement. So I agree. Thank you, Norm. I want to turn to Rebecca now, who um, spent a lot of your time studying states and federalism and our decentralized partisan system. Do you think that this bill strikes the right balance across state actors, federal actors, Congress, and the courts? First, thank you so much, Rick, for including me in this conversation. This has been really fun um, to listen to the other panelists. The question posed by the title of this panel, can ECA reform lessen the risk of election subversion? My answer, like all others on this panel, is most assuredly so. I'm wholly in favor of passing ECA reform, and I think it's a dramatic, um, the, the bill um, that's been proposed is a dramatic improvement over the status quo. But much of the discussion so far has rightfully uh, focused on the substance of the bill. I thought maybe I would spend a little bit of time focusing on process. More specifically, I thought I'd tie in something that I've been writing about this summer, which is the value of adversarial partisanship in our election process. So for decades, if not longer, reformers have tried to get partisanship out of election administrations. Uh, they've lobbied for nonpartisan election administration for good reason. Uh, not the least of which is that the United States is an outlier when it comes to partisan election administration. Virtually every other developed democracy relies on nonpartisan actors to run elections. But the U.S. system places overt partisans in charge of its elections, whether it's partisan majorities in state legislatures writing election rules or partisan election officials administering those rules. So this summer, I attempted a somewhat plucky counter narrative to the idea that nonpartisan election administration should be the gold standard. I wrote a paper arguing that at least when it comes to election administration, partisan involvement, particularly adversarial partisan involvement, is a feature and not a bug in U.S. elections. Not only that, adversarial election administration is a uniquely American approach to conflict resolution in the election space. I argue that adversarial partisan involvement in elections provides important checks. For example, having adversarial parties involved increases transparency. It increases accountability by allowing opposing sides to call out unfairness or bias. And it makes it more likely that voters will trust outcomes when they know that rival parties have taken an active role. This is true when it comes to counting tables staffed by members of adversarial parties. This is true when it comes to partisan observers from both parties having full access to observe election processes. So from adversarial state election boards at the state level down to state statutory mandates that poll workers hail from opposing parties, our system has long relied on adversarial parties to enhance transparency and secure public trust in outcomes. So what does any of this have to do with the Electoral Count Act and its reform? 
while there are important discussions to have about the particular provisions of the bill and how to improve it, and I think there have been a lot of really good suggestions that we've just heard, um, I wanted to spend time stressing the value of the bill uh, being crafted by radical partisans. So the US election system, I think, is most dangerous when it hands powers to craft election rules to partisans from a single party to act without a drop of consensus. Um, the American electoral process, it, I think, is at its best when reform incorporates partisan adversaries and making compromises towards a common goal. There are, of course, exceptions to that, like bipartisan gerrymanders when incumbents make deals across the aisle to protect each other. But adversarial partisan agreements that set rules and procedures for voting and vote counting before elections happen should be hailed. That members of both parties have come together to set the rules for counting electoral college votes in advance of the 2024 uh, election is of enormous value. I think that those who advocate against ECA reform because of quibbles with compromises made or because of concerns about gamesmanship or distrust of motives are discounting the monumental nature of adversarial partisan agreement in this context. We regularly witness many instances of single party dominated election reform, whether it's Republican state legislatures imposing election reforms without an iota of Democratic support, or Democrats in Congress coming up with election reform bills that lack a single Republican supporter. I'm certainly not the only one to point out that this is a real problem. One-sided election reform, no matter how right-minded its proponents believe it to be, is dangerous because it risks damaging public confidence in election outcomes and it risks voter disaffection and alienation more broadly. I guess it's important to say that I get that partisan agreement on election reform is a unicorn since we're all so stuck in media silos that Republicans and Democrats are standing at opposite ends of an elephant, assuming that problems that confront us take diametrically different shapes and warrant often diametric solutions. But that's what makes the Manchin-Collins bill so exceptional that it came to be through a process of consensus building should really be getting more play. I'll just end with one last point tying these ideas into the central question for this panel, which is whether ECA reform will lessen the risk of election subversion by just saying that I think our best hope of averting election subversion is limiting instances where partisans can act unilaterally and when they can to ensure that courts are positioned to review those actions and make sure they conform with the laws in place prior to the election. And I think this bill is infused with those core principles. And so I very much hope members of Congress of all political stripes can muster the wisdom to pass it. Thanks so much. And uh, I want to come back to Ned and then open things up and, and give Ned, a, a, since you've been a big supporter of this bill, a chance to respond to some of the concerns raised uh, by uh, Janae and Norm in part. And I also want to bring in one of the questions that was posed in the Q&A, which is about the role of state courts and other litigation. I think there's some concern that this federal channeling things, which Judge Ludwig talked about, channeling things into this federal solution is going to cut off other kinds of lawsuits that might be brought to protect voters' rights? Or, you know, what if you have state court judges that are themselves denialists and come up with contrary rulings, and that raises all kinds of questions of conflict among the courts? Thanks. Um, well, I want to embrace, Janae, I think, said, we can't let perfect be the enemy of, of you know, the bet and the, to build on Rebecca, too, the status quo. I mean, I, I agree that this is not a perfect bill, I wouldn't have written it exactly the way they did, but it's absolutely essential that something pass. And so I do not want, and and also if you, if, if you look at the history between the disputed election of 1876 and the fact that this convoluted 
you know, statute that was impenetrable the day it was adopted, as Judge Ludic said, was adopted. That was a decade later. That was not because Congress did nothing. It took a long time. And I think we have to be very, very worried that inertia can get the better of us here. I mean, it is essential that something better than the status quo pass before the end of this Congress. Because Rick, as you said, it's possible that the political dynamic in Congress will change after this year's election. And any bill, including the Collins Mansion bill, will be off the table. And that will be open season for election denialism to prevail. So could this bill be better? Absolutely. But if this is the only game in town, we better get on this train and have it be adopted. Otherwise, we risk nothing and we risk the kind of subversive scenario that that I started with. So I'm fine, as Norm said, for there to be some tweaking. Uh, I think uh, Professor uh, Derek Muller has offered some technical tweaks, including on timing, that my guests will be receptive to the working group. And so anything that counts as kind of a friendly amendment that was in the spirit of the compromise that the that that working group embraces, hallelujah, they'll they'll tweak it, they'll adopt it, and hopefully it'll move forward and get passed. Um, anything that is proposed that unravels the compromise is very dangerous. Even if it would be better from a policy perspective, I don't want it to completely unravel the compromise and us left with nothing. And, and I do worry... Um, you know, I think the the versions that Norm of his four points that set up, you know, I think all of them might be uh, embraceable by the compromise group, in which case fine. But if for whatever reason, the compromise group won't do it, we still got to pass pass the bill. And direct to your point about the state courts and what if other institutions embrace denialism, you know, some institution has to settle elections. And there is the risk of state courts going rogue, like there is the risk of state governors going rogue. That's why I do think the bill embraces the principle that Judge Ludig advanced and I think others embrace, which is that if you've got a state court engaging in election subversion, the supremacy of the under this bill means that the federal court applying due process and equal protection and the principle that Janae mentioned, which is that the rules have to be established in advance and no denialist institution can change the rules after the fact, not a state court, not a governor, not a legislature, nobody. Everything gets locked in before ballots are cast. Ballots are counted according to the rules set in advance. The federal courts will enforce that. They're human, but we have to trust somebody. The federal courts did a good job in 2020 And so let's lock in what the federal courts decide. The bill does that. And as the judge also said, Congress locks itself into accepting the federal court answer. So I think this is the best in principle and philosophy. This is the best we can do for purposes of the electoral count process. We can then engage the issues that Janae is talking about, about voting rights more broadly, we know that Congress didn't do that, even though it had a chance in, in 2021, but we've got to pass this law no matter what. So let's get it done. So let me ask kind of a broader question of, uh, would it matter if this law passes, if there are election deniers in say one house of Congress that could choose simply to ignore the bill? That is, how much does this actually constrain behavior? Norm? I think it does matter, Rick. I think that 
you know, the long experience, the uh, contested election of 1876, election contests before then and since show that while the rules are not by themselves outcome determinative, they're a significant factor. That's why we have to make the rules as good as they can be. And that's why, Ned, uh, it just, I understand the anxiety, but it just is not the way it works. The opening bid, we never, never in any important piece of legislation ever has the opening bid by a bipartisan gang. We still don't have 10, by the way. McConnell is holding back the numbers, I think, until he sees what the final contours are. It's never the final bid. And that's why we all have to. I feel very keenly what Janae is talking about on the other legislation, because that is really what will answer your question, Rick. We needed that broader package. A part of the reason that we can't just roll over and say, okay, we settle for whatever you give us is we we are fighting for every inch of advantage in a new Jim Crow system. Uh, And if what we're going to get out of this Congress with the January 6 hearings is the ECA. We need to make it better. And it's it helps the negotiation for all of us to say that. But this is not the best we can do. We can do better. I'm and I will embrace Ned's. We've gone from West Side Story to my embraceable you. And I think the solutions that I'm offering, they go a little further than Derek. But I think the solutions that I'm offering are practical, they're tight, and they are embraceable. The House is going to insist on some of these things. I believe that's clear from looking at the contours. And that, if we can get there, Rick, that will answer your question. Yes, that will make a difference. And that does raise uh, an issue that was also mentioned in a question in the chat, which is, we've yet to hear from the January 6th Committee on the House side, which has said that it's going to be coming up with its own suggestions. But time is short. There is a lame duck session where something could pass, but it, it does seem like we're talking about a, a matter of months. So I just want to thank everyone. I wish we would have had more time for back and forth here, uh, but I, I'm glad we got to hear from, from everyone. Thank you for attending today's uh, Safeguarding Democracy Project webinar. I'm Rick Hassan of Youth Life School of Law, and it's really been a pleasure to be with all of you. The ELB podcast is produced with the assistance of the UCLA School of Law, but I'm solely responsible for its content. The producer of the ELB podcast is Melody Rowell. The theme music for the ELB podcast is a composition jazz by the band Beat FN, used under Creative Commons license. I'm Rick Hassan. Please join us again next time.